Hi everyone and welcome to the Joyful Balance podcast and you're here with your host me, me I'm Mira and I'm here with my co-host Denise and we're going to be taking you on a journey all through your mind, your brain and your body and how all three, three things are interlinked. We're um, both together specialists in psychology, nutrition and in neuroscience so you're going to be getting the whole 360 all on brain health and nutrition from us um, and so I'm going to hand over to my wonderful co-host Denise. Hi everyone so as you can see for those of you who see us on YouTube we have another guest today and we are super excited. <laughs> so today we have Dr. Nisa Aslam. Uh, she's a Hertfordshire GP here in the UK and she has finished obviously her, her medicine degree and she's been a practitioner for quite a long number of years. She's worked in hospitals as well as in community um, and obviously as a, as a uh, GP for the local area in Hertfordshire and in private clinics. What we know is that as a general practitioner, she manages both acute illnesses as well as chronic ones. And today she's going to share us more of her knowledge and we will be discussing more, you know, medical kind of things and topics. Obviously, we are keeping it close to our bread and butter, which is neuroscience, psychology, nutrition. However, it might go into different areas and we that's just we've, the beauty of our podcast. We've been known to uh, veer from our standard direction on occasion, <laughs> but we promise we'll, we won't make it too difficult for you, Nisa. <laughs> so welcome, Nisa. Thank you so much for agreeing to be our guest speaker today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your lovely, joyful podcast. Thanks. How are you doing? Really good. Thank you. Really, really good. Yeah. And excited to, to have this conversation with you today. Amazing. So how we're going to work today um, is that I'm I'm going to start with the questions. So just in case podcast listeners think I've chucked Denise aside, I promise I haven't. Um, but then Denise is going to come in uh, with some questions to make sure that I certainly don't veer off too far track. Um, and then, yeah, we'll just keep this nice, free flowing and easy. Uh, I hope that all sounds good. Perfect. So, um, Nisa, I was just really curious, have you always been interested in kind of um, either for yourself or for your patients in healthy lifestyle or is that that kind of interest in living a healthy lifestyle, did that kind of come in later? So I think it's an interesting question because you may assume that, you know, being a doctor and having been a medical student, I would have always been interested in a healthy lifestyle. But actually, surprisingly, I didn't really know much about healthy lifestyle at all until I became a GP. So when I was at medical school, I feel it was very much a, tr a traditional model of teaching. So the way we sort of learned, we, we did a lot of science and physiology and pharmacology, which is amazing. And then in terms of managing patients, we learned how to identify disease and then how to treat with either a prescription, so a pill or surgery. And what I felt that I didn't really learn um, because it wasn't in my curriculum was lifestyle medicine. Then I became a GP. Um, I was working in central London at the time, and I realized that most of the long-term conditions that I was seeing and treating were due to lifestyle, so poor lifestyle choices. And that's when I started doing my own research and really learning to make changes for myself and my family, but also for my patients, because it, it was something that I was just not aware of. I had not been taught. It wasn't really covered that much in my GP training either. 
so it's it's a recent interest of mine and it's certainly developing and it's now become quite a passion and something that I'm working on every day for myself, for my family and for my patients. That's really interesting because actually that leads me very nicely onto one of my other questions, which is like, as a ballpark, I know you can't possibly give a, a super accurate figure, but what of the proportion of patients you see, what percentage would you say are kind of as a result of, of, of lifestyle practices that aren't geared towards being very healthy? that make up that the causes for the reason that people come in to see you? So I think, I mean, I think, as you say, you, you can't really put a number on it, but what I would say is that most, if not all of the non-communicable long-term diseases that I see are due to bad lifestyle. So, you know, specifically diabetes, heart disease, vascular disease, stroke, osteoarthritis, you know, that that's um, a large sort of um, number of my cases that I see in clinic, and they are directly due to poor lifestyle choices. So, of course, if we address those and if we practice preventative medicine, we can stop patients from being in that position and we can also ease the burden on the NHS. Yeah, that's a huge one, isn't it? Um, I mean, and just so in case our listeners aren't aware, would you mind clarifying what communicable and non-communicable diseases are? Sure. So, so communicable diseases would be infectious disease. So, you know, any type of infection, whether that's um, a chest infection, tuberculosis, chickenpox, um, COVID-19, those are communicable diseases. So those are not directly linked to your lifestyle, but non-communicable diseases um, that you don't catch from others. So they have, you know, um, other ways of developing and other factors that play in. Yeah. So that's a bit like, as you were talking about diabetes, heart disease, uh, osteoarthritis, as you mentioned, which uh, curiously, why is it that Asians, and maybe because I'm also from an Asian background, why are we so predisposed to diabetes? Is it genetics? So, Um, yes, so, uh, so, you know, I think it's multifactorial. So certainly genetics uh, comes into play, Um, family history. I think that's a large part of it. Um, And I think what doesn't help is perhaps our lifestyle. So particularly our food, it's quite rich in oil or ghee or, you know, we fry a lot of our food. And I know that's a generalization and things are changing. But actually, if you're um, from that part of the world, then, you know, our diets, we have a lot of paratas and biryanis and lots of delicious things. But um, that does not help when you're genetically predisposed to diabetes. And, you know, us Asians, we carry a lot of weight um, in our waistline. Oh, okay. uh, so central obesity and that's really really bad because you end up with visceral fat uh, and that's a disaster because then you know you're prone to diabetes and then comes stroke heart attack kidney problems so you know in answer to your question we're genetically predisposed and our lifestyles and the way we've eaten traditionally um, are certainly not helping yeah, yeah and I, I think that's really interesting because I and I promise I will get back to the scheduled questions because <laughs> I can I can feel Denise panicking ever so slightly no, no? okay no not okay. at all I actually wanted to ask a follow-up on that one. Oh, okay because <laughs> because what we what I've often heard when I'm in when I've been uh training as a nutritionist which is where my background is as well as the neuroscience piece um is that genetics loads the gun but it's the environment that pulls the trigger and I think that's a really interesting, like, yeah, it's just an interesting saying that I've kind of picked up, which which really rings true in that respect. But Denise, by all means, if you had a follow-up question, go for it. I was just wondering, in regards to uh, nutrition, 
uh, not necessarily for you know uh, the Asian community, but in general, and for people who might be predisposed to storing the you know the fat around our midsection. Is there any you know anything in specific that we should definitely consider to include in our in our diets or to focus more in our diets in order to you know set ourselves up for success? rather than I'm imagining a lot of fried everything is probably not our best friend. And I'm referring it in plural because I'm one of those people as well with the predisposed, that is my area where everything goes. So I was just wondering if you have any, you know, advice or any top tips that you could share with us. I know it's a little bit off the cuff and both of you can chip in. Sure. I mean, I, th I think I think if we don't focus on just a particular culture, but just generally, um, I think one of the things is sometimes um, nutrition has been made quite complicated. So there's lots of different diets and people get really wound up. And I think my aim is to make it really simple for my patients. So think about your plate and then, you know, I think make it half it. So half of it should be plant-based, so vegetables and salad. And then think about your carbohydrate. So it should be a natural carbohydrate. So potato, rice, for example, pasta, small portion. And then the other quarter should be your protein. So I think whatever culture you're from and whatever diet, you know, whatever cooking style you have, you can do that. You can have your vegetable and salad on one side of the plate. It's really about portion control. Mm. And then your carbohydrates really shouldn't be bigger than the size of the palm of your hand. So I think that's one of the simple things that I'd like to say. I think it's hard to make dietary changes, but some things are so important. So, you know, trying to cut down on sugary, high salt, processed food, it's not easy because our taste buds are now accustomed to these types of foods. Don't get rid of them all at once if you can't, but just try and cut down on those and try and get those vegetables and salad in instead. Okay, you might like chocolate. We all like chocolate. If you can't give it up, don't give it up. Just, just half the portion size to start off with. And then maybe think about swapping it for something like your dairy milk chocolate could become dark chocolate where you might want to have dates. So I'm not going to go and do a whole nutrition course here because actually it's not even my area of expertise. But I think it's about making small, small, consistent changes to your plate mm. and just starting to kind of analyze what's on your plate. And, you know, there are a lot of cliche things that actually work. So make your plate colorful. So instead of beige foods, you should have some green and some red on that plate. Um, you know, I think kind of getting into that mentality that you're eating to be nourished and to derive energy. So think about whether you need that cupcake. Mm. Yes, it's fine to have a treat, you know, and also think about, are you hungry or are you thirsty? Are you really hungry? You've had your meal. Could you drink some water? Because, you know, most of our body is water. So is it that you've not had your two to three liters of water that day? So could you, could you sip some water? And by, uh, what I'm not, so what I'm not saying is, just stop eating, have some celery no. and, and, you know, have some water. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying just do clever things like have these little hacks to try and make those changes so that overall you have this picture of better nutrition. And I think that's really hard. And it's about changing that mindset slowly, slowly, whatever culture you're from. You know, there's so many things that you can do to tweak things so that you can enjoy your food and have a nice time. But but yeah. be healthier. Yeah, I, I would actually largely agree with pretty much everything Nisa said. Like, um, it, it's particularly around the portion sizes and the way that you think about your plate. So absolutely, and by naturally, 
doing some of these things and, and I mentioned in a previous episode if you focus on more what you're including into your diet you naturally leave less space in your tummy literally for, for the stuff that doesn't serve you as much so you know um if you're if you're suddenly you know basing your meals around your the vegetables that you're having rather than worrying about what carb and sometimes not necessarily it's true for protein but if you start thinking about what what veg you're going to have first and what protein what carbs going to go with it and you know by naturally putting a half of that plate of salad and veg and sometimes a bit of fruit for example in the morning or whatever um then you're naturally just getting a much better balance of, of nutrients and and you know with the whole colorful plate you're just amping up all those beautiful antioxidants that you're going to get from your food and and plant um based nutrients you're going to lower your inflammation that massively contributes to a sense of um chronic disease and all of these things like they don't like nisa said i think it's so important that setting yourself up for this all or nothing super restrictive diet often is a recipe for it to either not be successful at all or almost more dangerously and nisa you may or may not agree is when you kind of yo-yo diet and you go on these like extremes um of eating either way where you're suddenly super restrictive or or kind of binging and that's a really un- unhealthy place for, for you to be in i think mentally and physically absolutely because you yo-yo diet and you guilt creeps in you feel demoralized it's like a vicious circle you you either entirely give up or you're just unhappy and i, I yeah. don't think the aim of any diet should be to make you unhappy you know because yeah. life is short we should be loving our food so it should be small sustainable changes that you can you can make that you can continue continue with yeah absolutely yeah. thank you both that's what i i mean we've covered this in quite a, a few uh, bits and pieces of episodes in the past but it's just nice to put it together that's why i jumped with with a question sorry here no. i was derailing your your thought a little no i'm very glad you did because i started the derailment in the first place so i'm totally <laughs> totally fine with that i'm just having um i mean so as a next kind of question you know when when a patient comes to you that you you, you know has a is in all likelihood has um their their problem that they're coming with be it a problem with sleep or difficulty losing weight whatever it may be um and you know, you have a feeling or a sense that it could be that lifestyle's a major contributing factor you know i know that you're assuming that you you're working you know within the nhs your your time is extraordinarily tight right in terms of the consultation time so how do you start to approach that conversation around lifestyle changes um in order to benefit um someone's you know well-being you know because i i know for sleep my understanding is right now for example if you take sleep as an example um quite rightly there's a lot more reluctance to prescribe sleeping tablets because of their addictive qualities um whereas there may be some simple lifestyle stuff for example putting down their phone at night which might help them get to sleep faster so just really curious how you're able to kind of start to bring that 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 kind of conversation in when you when you talk to patients and also maybe how receptive they are to it so i mean time time is short as you're always here gps say um and it's hard to do uh, holistic lifestyle medicine in in 10 minutes isn't it i suppose the beauty of being a a gp is that you can have a kind of long term professional relationship with your patients so you can keep bringing them back and i think um there's a lot to be said about establishing a good rapport with your patient um to start off with so if they come in with hip pain you might not want to jump in with a conversation about weight um but it's about actually that first appointment has to be about listening and being non-judgmental 
um, and being compassionate. And once you do that, you sort of earn trust and you can go into a partnership with the patient. And once that happens, actually, I, I feel naturally so many patients just open up to me and, they, and then they'll start asking me, you know, doctor, what can I do to lose weight? What can I do to sleep better? And so, you know, over the course of a few appointments, we can tackle things and um, almost every patient is really, really receptive. So if you're non-judgmental, if you take the time to slow down, listen to them, break things down, not everyone has a science degree, not everyone can understand complicated terms. So, you know, you know macros and ketones, and you don't need to do that. But I think um, just taking the time to understand your patient also, you know, is, there a, is that a housewife sitting in front of you? Is it a builder who's really busy? Is it a city worker? You know, just kind of analyzing each individual's holistic situation, then taking the time. And I think you can have a great dialogue with people and really, you know, have, have a partnership and, and make changes with them and kind of go on this amazing journey and you'll see changes and patients will sometimes come back and they'll be so grateful. And some of my like female patients will want to hug me because they've seen changes and it's just really amazing, actually. Yeah, I bet I, that must be super, super gratifying. It's amazing. It's one of the yeah. best things about being a GP, actually. Oh, that's really, really cool. Um, and, and where do you think most, I mean, I suppose they're kind of almost obvious now that I think about it, but, but like, where do you see people, what are the top three things that you, you consistently see patients are kind of doing that are least helpful to their overall well-being? Like if you could make them, you can either make them general or, or specific, it's entirely up to you, but I'm a, you know, it's so the same. Yep, go for it. So, so you want me to say the least um, unhelpful things in terms or of the diet. most, the most unhelpful things in terms of diet or lifestyle. I think um, sometimes people try to make one big, huge push and change when, understandably, they're they're desperate. I get that because we've all felt low and desperate, but they try and make that huge push. It's really difficult, and then people give up, and that's that's you're setting yourself up for failure. You know, just slow down, take time, do small consistent changes every day is what I say, and build them into your lifestyle. Because if you're a busy mom or a busy doctor or a busy builder, you may not be able to sustain that huge change. So I think the biggest thing that people do where they go wrong is they just try and do it all, together, all at once and that, that doesn't work. I think the second thing is sleep. So where people are especially in the UK people are so overworked and stressed and busy you know I feel like as a country we're just always stressed and so people I think think of sleep as a luxury so it's like you know oh you know I'm being naughty if I have a seven hour sleep but no you're not you need seven hours of sleep to heal yourself to recover your body and your mind and I think people feel guilty sleeping and that's where people go wrong because you need to sleep and you need to have sleep hygiene in place so that you can sleep properly and have that great restorative sleep. So that's where people go wrong because people think it's some luxury, you know, you're lazy if you sleep or, oh, you know, I should be surviving on four hours sleep and caffeine. So I think that's wrong, well, not wrong, that's, that's not a nice thing to say, but I think that's where people could do better and, you know, that's a disservice to themselves. Um, the third thing, where do people go wrong? I suppose, Again, perhaps it fits in with that busy lifestyle. We're so busy, people go for like the short-term fix. So 
perhaps a takeaway or a meal from the supermarket or processed food because it, short term it's easier right you can feed your children quickly you can do that and then get on with your your job some people have evening jobs and I think perhaps I can understand why people do it but I, I think that perhaps you're going wrong because in the short term that's great but in the long term that's going to cause problems because you're taking in high levels of sugar and salt and it's expensive and I totally understand why busy mums would buy food from outside like a pre-prepared meal but I think trying to go back to what our grandmas did and buying those fruits and vegetables and cooking um, is an important thing. And I think we have lost that as a society to an extent. Mm. And I think if that could come back, maybe our lifestyles would be better. Yeah, I think that's a uh, really interesting point. Denise, did you have something you wanted to say? I am so happy Nisa mentioned sleep. <laughs> I'm just so happy. We love sleep. Denise, we love sleep. I know I know and that's what I tell my clients all the time is like this is not some sort of magical thing that only the rich and famous do you need to sleep and it's so sad it's so sad that it's so stigmatized my goodness you know I've had floods of tears saying you know I feel lazy my family thinks I'm lazy you know all I want is seven hours sleep but that's that's your right as a human being you need that to heal yeah. your mind, to heal your body, you know, and you know, if you if you don't sleep enough, you have higher rates of higher chance of becoming obese. You there's there are chronic conditions linked to lack of sleep. There is robust scientific evidence that if you don't sleep enough, you are at higher risk of depression, anxiety. Uh, there's some science linking it to things like ADHD and autism. Um, there is some research which actually tells you good quality research that if you don't sleep enough for a long period of time, you will die earlier than your counterparts yeah. who sleep. So, you know, there is no reason to not prioritize sleep. It's a beautiful thing that we need. Yes, I think in, in, in I am absolutely with you 100%, but I think in this latest uh, pop culture, you know, hustle culture, whatever you want to call it, it's like, oh, it's fabulous. You have to go to bed at midnight, wake up at three, do a run, do this, do that. And then, you know, magically you're going to be so successful. And they link, they link the lack of sleep to success. Absolutely. And And I keep, yes. And I keep, I mean, maybe there are humans. I, I, I have no doubt there are humans out there who are able to go on with their life very successfully at a very, a small amount of sleep but because it works for one individual doesn't mean it has to work for all of us Absolutely. I mean speaking from my experience give me five hours of sleep for three nights in a row I'm dead <laughs> I don't know your, 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 your mood may decline yeah. and physically yeah. Yeah. people get run down I see patients coming down with infections so so sleep is key you you need to sleep you need to eat well and you need to sleep well mm, absolutely yes yeah <laughs> We are we are the biggest fan of sleep, I think, in this circle. We absolutely I know, are. We absolutely are. I know it's difficult for you know um, uh, parents, and obviously for Nisa, I should have mentioned this. Nisa is a beautiful mom of three children, so she has a very busy schedule with work and managing a young family. And I know it's difficult for some people to manage to sleep because you know when you have a brand new baby, it's very demanding and so on. But just because that is an episode in your life, a fragment of your life for X amount of months or years, doesn't mean that once they grow up, you should feel guilty because you slept. Absolutely. I, I, I completely agree. Absolutely. 
that but that brings me into a very interesting question which was on my list of questions which was you know for, for you personally Nisa like what are the, some of the wellness practices particularly um as a, a mum of three young children um to like what are the practices that you have that make you or help you to feel really well in yourself so um I've I've you know, I, I am a, a busy mom of, of three. I, I juggle my work and, and trying to look after my children. And what I found, um, particularly the more children I, I have, the less time I have. And I found that I was not making time for myself. So, you know, we hear this thing about self-care and is it a bit of a just, you know, jargon that we use. But actually, I, I realized I had to make time for myself and practice what I preach to my patients. So what I do every single day to make myself feel good mentally and physically, I exercise. So I have to do, and I've said to myself, even if it's 10 minutes of cardiovascular exercise, I have to do it. But ideally about half an hour I do. And then I'm lucky enough to live in an area where there's lots of nature. So I try as much as I can um, to go on a walk. In fact, last night, my uh, toddler was having a little bit of a tantrum. She was very upset. And I said, let's let's hold mommy's hand. Let's go for a walk in nature. Let's calm down. And, you know, physically touching trees and just being in nature. So I've really incorporated that into my lifestyle. I, I couldn't do that in central London, but I, it's so important to me. Um, and actually, the third thing that I do, which is probably what most people love to do, is particularly after the pandemic where we couldn't see our family, um, of spending time with my family and friends and reinforcing those positive connections is so important so you know it's so easy to whatsapp people and use facebook messenger and instagram and you know god knows what other technology but there's no substitute for real human contact and uh, I, I try and bring the family together so that we can spend time with each other so that my children can learn the value of relationships and that you learn that it's more than just a transaction on social media um, because that's that's what life is about right that richness um, that you get from human connection. So uh, to summarize, I exercise every day. I walk mm -hmm. 10,000 steps every day. Amazing. And I try and make meaningful connections with family or friends, whether that's having friends over for lunch or spending time with my family. Those are the things that keep me grounded and, and you know, keep me feeling good. Like I feel great when I do those things. Which is really awesome. And I, I think, you know, what's really striking in kind of the conversations that we're starting to have and we can definitely keep this part going it's that element of I don't know how you feel about this but it's this element of making really conscious decisions so like you say like you may not have time uh you know especially with a demanding job and a young family to like always do a, sh a, a sh well I was going to swear there but I'm going to try not to a lot of exercise and that's okay but the fact that you can consciously make time to say I'm going to get outside and do my 10,000 steps and I'll do like 10 minutes of weights like that's Absolutely. amazing and they don't and these are not like massive decisions where you're like oh god I, I have to be at the gym for 6am and I have oh, to like no. be in there for an hour and I have to do this that and the other it's like it's almost these micro mo like I think we all to do anything really massive feels so overwhelming and like so daunting but I think when you break it down and you have this like five second pause to be like, okay, I can either choose the really easy option or I can choose something that takes five extra seconds or five extra minutes, but is a much better overall long-term healthy option for me. It's finding that pause to try and pick that one because immediately your brain wants to do the really easy, lazy thing. And that's just 
human nature. That's not the person listening to the podcast, me, you, uh, or Denise being, you know, that we're just being human. But I think there's an element of just having those micro pauses that mean that allow you space to really come to a conscious decision to to choose something that's just that bit healthier. And those and all those small things incrementally will add up. Absolutely. So when when you say conscious decision, it's a, it's a it's about planning a little bit. So just a little yeah. bit of planning. So rather than just living in the moment and just doing what's kind of hedonistic and what would feel good at the time, you just plan a little bit. Okay, you know after the kids have had their dinner, I'll, I'll go for a walk. Or actually, you know, my husband works a busy job, so we were not seeing each other that much. And I thought, okay, a clever way of me spending time with him is we both do our 10,000 steps together. So we'll go for a walk when the sun goes down or as it's getting cooler, because, you know, I can get my steps in and I can have a chat with him. So it's about kind of being quite sneaky and clever and just trying to think, how can I do two things? You know, so kill two birds with one stone. How can I do that? Can I take my baby for a walk in the push chair? So she has a nice time and I can get my steps in. So I agree. It's it's overwhelming to think about, you know, doing an hour in the gym at 5 a.m. But if you can do something fun instead, I think mm. that's the key to success when it comes to a healthy lifestyle. Totally. Like walking meetings. I mean, catching up with loved ones on a long walk, which is something that I think we're hopefully starting to become more accustomed to. It's maybe one of the benefits. Not that I would ever wish what's happened to us to have happened, but a positive outlook from COVID. Um, I think that's really, really cool, actually, to to kind of think, actually, there's a way that you can do, you know, two really, really good, like really healthy things for you at once and that don't feel super onerous. Maybe it's cooking with your family, for example, teaching Absolutely. your your elder ones how to, you know, chop ingredients and all Absolutely. sorts. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think the key here is just uh, starting small, as as Nisa was saying a, a, a moment before. It's just for those of you guys listening, thinking, oh, my God, I have to change completely my lifestyle. We would say stop, breathe, don't do that. <laughs> Start with one thing. Obviously, goals are fantastic, and that is something... Uh, I think all of us in this uh, uh, virtual room today would be very keen on and having a goal, but it doesn't have to be the only thing you see in your life and then everything has to be changed completely. You can still have a goal and then start with little steps. Very, the, I think I always say the smaller, the better, because they yeah. become your habit. They become your everyday action. And then you do them without even thinking about it, like brushing your teeth. And by the time you realize it, it's already done. <laughs> You know, you've you walked whatever, five minutes, 10 minutes, however much you, you decided for that day. And then slowly and surely you can increment that and you can add something more and something more. And in 365 days, you'll be completely in a different place than you were 365 days prior. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. So baby steps, baby steps. Yeah, and that doesn't make what your achievements are any less valid. It actually makes them more powerful because you'll be able to sustain them for longer. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, so here's an interesting question. Uh, you know, what? so I, I have a background in nutrition and in neuroscience, and I kind of came to, uh, you know, my journey through... Uh, through illness of my own so I have well I've had had pretty pretty bad anxiety and depression and then had to start on a whole journey of wellness and and that's what really helped me recover but so Nisa another kind of um 
question kind of pivoting on from that is you know I sort of discovered wellness as a result of illness that I'd experienced myself and we've kind of covered that in previous episodes but you know sometimes what I see as someone who has you know has um experienced so let's call it western or modern medicine um but also works a lot with more um natural um methods or or ways of healing do you ever find that there's conflict between the two in terms of perhaps what NICE, which is a National Institute of Clinical Excellence, I think, which is what the guidelines by which the NHS and doctors go by, versus what we know um, in terms of what works from a more natural diet and lifestyle perspective? Do the two ever clash when it comes to the advice that you give to clients and how do you, um, patients, sorry, and how do you kind of manage that conflict? Sure. So the question, I suppose, is um, do the NHS guidelines clash with um, sort of lifestyle medicine or, you know, using natural ways to to treat people, I suppose, is is the question. Yeah, exactly. I, I wouldn't say that they, they necessarily clash the um, NHS guidelines with lifestyle medicine, but I would say that um, the NICE guidelines are quite focused on identifying a medical condition and then treating it with a pill or, or surgery. Um, and what I've always felt is missing is that step in between of, you know, what alternatives does the patient have? So what else can they do before they are prescribed that tablet? So um, if someone has difficulty sleeping, um, you know, do you look at the person holistically or do you, do you prescribe a sleeping pill? Now, I think in the past, the NICE guidelines were quite heavily focused on medication, but I can see a change because I think we're realizing um, with this current healthcare model that it's it's not working. The NHS is under a lot of stress because of conditions that are due to poor lifestyle. Um, and so I think um, there's acknowledgement that the guidelines have to change. So what that means is that they have to focus a lot more on preventative medicine. So rather than just having a guideline on medication to treat diabetes, you might start incorporating, you know, um, lifestyle med medicine, so preventative medicine. So that means, actually, I think that goes back to medical school. So medical students need to be taught this kind of new speciality almost of preventative medicine, lifestyle medicine. What does that actually mean? Because I didn't know that. I didn't know what it meant as a medical student or as a, as a young doctor. So I'd kind of say to my patient, oh, and have a healthy lifestyle. But I didn't know what that entailed, right? So I think coming back to your question, these NHS guidelines um, hopefully will evolve in the next few years because mm. they need to so that we don't end up with this kind of overwhelmed healthcare system where we've got all these kind of diseases linked to lifestyle and we're kind of throwing pills at them, but it's too late because, you know, what yeah. we should have done is practice preventative med medicine and lifestyle medicine. I think that yeah and you know what I was just wondering thinking about as well as I, as I kind of asked that question is I think I think it depends on what like what end of the spectrum that you're talking about because you know if you think about uh you know you'll always get extremes where some feel that um uh you know that the the western you know or or modern medicine isn't really helping at all and you should order it naturally and then you'll have people that feel kind of the the opposite but actually i think when you're looking at science and science on the um on the more like natural lifestyle elements is catching up to what we know about modern medicine 
but that doesn't necessarily have to mean they clash. And, you know, certainly how I practice, how Denise practices, and obviously how you practice is that we go by what scientific evidence we have. And so it does, like, if you're grounded in science, it's actually very difficult for both of them to clash, I think. Um, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And actually, I mean, look, a lot of the modern medicines that we prescribe, so the opiates, um, digoxin, aspirin, they come from plants. So, you know, there's no denying of the healing power of plants. You can't go to the extreme and start treating serious medical conditions with just natural things because that's also not right. Um, but I think it's about incorporating lifestyle and preventative medicine into our healthcare system. Um, and I think you're right. What we should be doing is advocating evidence-based lifestyle medicine. Yeah. So it should absolutely have robust evidence behind it. So the aim isn't to kind of say wish-washy kind of airy-fairy things which don't have science behind them. They should have robust evidence behind them. And then you incorporate them into the kind of modern medicine that we're practicing. They should go hand in hand with prescriptions and tablets and surgery um, because no denying they, you know, the, you, you can't deny the place of no. pills or medications, can you? But at the same time, I think it's just about kind of weaving in all this evidence that we now have about lifestyle and preventative uh, preventative medicine. Totally. And, and, you know, I think I think it's especially controversial, I think, when you're getting into to kind of the more I mean, it's controversial in all areas, but I think particularly when it comes to mental health, because, you know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the evidence regarding antidepressants is constantly being called into question now, I think more than ever. Um, but, but for me, I think when I look at clients, because I, I tend to work mostly with clients who have uh, a diagnosed mental health condition, namely more anxiety and depression, um, it's about also using lifestyle. That means that you don't, you're on the least amount of medication that you need to be on, which is, you know, obviously a lot of medications, particularly ones that are for, for mood can come with side effects. So it's, it's kind of getting the best that basically out of both worlds. And that's not to say that medication particularly for mental health, can't be life-saving. It absolutely can. But it's about, you know, where can we use lifestyle to its, to the best advantage, um, you know, and, and therefore, you know, lessening the, the overall medical intervention you need, which hopefully is, is beneficial for you overall as an individual, right? Absolutely. And I, I think when you, as you talk about mental health, so if you look at the NICE guidelines, then actually NICE guidelines also advocate conservative measures and um, lifestyle changes for people who suffer from mental health conditions so what they what the guidelines say um, is look at the person holistically look at things like sleep exercise what they're eating social support and look at all of that before you start prescribing things like SSRIs yeah. um, personally as a GP despite all the headlines I think SSRIs and antipsychotics are so valuable and life-saving mm -hmm. and I you know I personally don't care what the headlines say they have a place they do work. Um, but as you say, you can't just give pills in isolation. You have to support the patient as a whole. And that's what NICE says that, you know, you need to think about talking therapies and you need to think about sleep hygiene and exercise. And only once you've done that, should you be thinking about, you know, giving a pill. Um, yeah. So I I'm completely with you on that. I think it is a, indeed a, a stepped approach, as as you were mentioning, particularly when it comes to to mental health, because 
some some uh, maybe smaller changes would make a huge difference for that particular individual and maybe it would not be needed to get to the SSRIs necessarily for them. If, I agree. If something else is identified and worked on. Absolutely. I, I just uh, realized uh, uh, another question that I'm very, and I will steal it from, uh, from Mira's list and it, I'm just asking it because I'm really keen on it. And that is about the connection between uh, uh, diet, lifestyle, mental health and gut health. I, I am just, I personally believe there is a, you know, a very, very important connection between what we have in our guts and how we are overall in the sense of moods and how we feel and how we digest food. But I was just wondering if you see that as a connection, if you, if you look at that from a, you know, medical point of view. I mean, I, I think, you know, there's that old saying that you you are what you eat. And I never quite understood that when I was young. And actually, now I understand it as I learn the science. And th th I think there's actually this emerging area of science now, um, which looks at gut neurology. Now, if we think about the gut, um, it's a structure which is full of millions of neurons. So our gut is actually our second brain, which is fascinating, right? Because you know, when you're young, when you learn biology, you, you might think of it as just a tube that digests your food, but it's so much more than that. It has its own nervous system, which not only works with the brain, but works independently of the brain. So you can sever the vagus nerve and the gut will still work the nervous system. Um, the other amazing thing is that we have serotonin, which controls our mood, memory, reward systems. Um, so serotonin is, is essentially a neurotransmitter. And 90% of that is found in the gut. So isn't that amazing? So of course, what you eat is going to affect your mood, right? Um, you have this thing called the gut-brain axis, which is the connection between your, your tummy or your gut and your brain. And actually scientists are still trying to unravel these connections, but it's very complex. There's, there are so many layers to this. So on a basic level, you have the bacteria in your gut, in your tummy, the good bacteria, which you know, we've all heard of, I think most of us have heard of, and what they do is they digest your food, as you say, but then they keep inflammation levels down in the body, which, you know, that's really, really important in terms of preventing serious illness. And they also um, interact with kind of chemical messengers, which then link up to the brain and affect your mood. So essentially the bacteria in your bowel have a huge impact on your mood. And there is evidence to say that if that bacteria is disrupted, then you are at higher risk of um, anxiety, depression, and other mental health conditions. So that bacteria connecting the brain and the gut, and then the nervous systems working together, there's no doubt that the gut and the brain are working in synergy, and they affect everything. They affect our nutrition, inflammation levels in the body, your risk of other conditions. So whether that's inflammatory conditions, whether that's immune system problems, whether that's your mood, anxiety. So you are what you eat and what you put into your tummy will directly affect your mood. And we know that that's, you know, that's written in science now and, and, and more science will come. For sure. Like, yeah, I think you're right. Nisa. like, we're still trying to discover so much and, and the vagus nerve and, and which is basically your super highway between your brain and, and your gut in terms of like this, this long nerve that, that runs through um, your body. Like, I believe that actually there's more messages that go up to from your gut to your brain than vice versa. So that just goes to show you just what power lies within the gut in terms of mental health. 
And now there's like, you know, there's evidence that's coming out that certain dietary patterns, for example, the Mediterranean diet, as I have waxed lyrical about throughout the podcast, is actually shown to be particularly beneficial for people who have mental health conditions. And there's also this like, you know, and, and maybe we can really quickly touch on this, Nisa, particularly your experience, but my understandings of research literature is also that there's a really big link between mental health conditions or having poor mental health when you have a condition like IBS and one exacerbating the other. I'm guessing you must come across that fairly routinely, I would have thought, in, in practice. I mean, I think, I, do, I don't know what the underlying mechanism is linking the two, but I suspect it is embedded in this um, gut-brain axis. So that's probably yeah. where the answer lies. But yes, I see it all the time. So um, there, there certainly seems to be a correlation with anxiety and, you know, conditions that cause bowel spasms and irritable bowel syndrome. So they certainly seem to be going hand in hand. And I, I suspect the underlying cause for that is that there's this link between the gut and the brain through this access that we've talked about. Mm. Yeah, and, and it's just to show, give some examples to our listeners of just how closely these two, these two are interlinked. And, and, you know, by hopefully affecting certainly the way that all three of us work essentially is by affecting one of these systems, you can start to affect the other really positively and just bring about this overall sense of better well-being. Absolutely. I mean, there's research going on in the area of schizophrenia and whether that's linked to gut health. Um, and I think that's definitely an ongoing sort of area of research. But I think we'll find out more and more in the years to come. But there certainly seems to be robust evidence that gut health is linked to mental health conditions. Is, yeah. that, is that something... Uh, sorry, Mira, to... No, no, no. You go for it. Is that something you... Uh, maybe advocate to your patients when you see them with certain you know appropriate conditions where you are questioning how how well their gut is functioning is that something you you, you talk to them and educate them I guess um I do but not specifically where we still practice in this traditional model of of medicine so actually to be honest when you see patients um the focus generally is on mental health and talking therapies and medications and Actually, I have to admit, you don't really go into gut health that much because it's just not sort of in the kind of in the way we're taught or it's not in the guidelines. So you might loosely touch upon it. But actually, I think if I started talking about gut health to some of my patients who suffer mental health problems, they would look at me funny because I think we haven't really made those connections yet. You know, we're, mm. not, we're not used to talking even as clinicians about someone who's mentally you know, suffering from a mental health condition. And their gut so I might touch upon it in terms of their lifestyle in general um, but it's not necessarily something that we focus on in terms of a therapy as such mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it's just perhaps comes into the holistic picture um, but I would say it probably doesn't get the attention that it that it deserves yeah I, I mean that especially when you're like it's so tough in terms of, of time but mm. in the consultation but actually that leads me to another interesting question I know I've seen it come up more and more, and maybe you can talk a bit more about it from your experience, Nisa, but with a lot of wellness practices, they can come across, at least on the face of it, really expensive. So gyms can be quite expensive, for example. Organic food, in the very least, can be quite pricey. Um, some, there's always some sort of wellness gadget to be bought. 
just look at Gwyneth Paltrow. She's worth billions, right? All off of wellness practices. Don't even get me started on her. I haven't got all the, we would be here forever. Um, but when, you know, particularly, I think when you work in the community, what are, you know, what's your kind of top tips for low cost lifestyle? Like, you know, uh, for li lifestyle improvements, would you say? Um, I think that 10,000 steps a day will cost you nothing. So get moving um, and, and, and genuinely go with your family, go with your children, um, hold their hand. It's your time with them. Go with your partner. So you can walk for free. If you look at the NHS guidelines, when they talk about moderate or vigorous exercise, they actually lay out some of these things. So you could, I mean, bicycles, I think are not that expensive. So you could go for a bike ride in London. I think they have those bikes that you can the Boris bikes yeah, yeah. the Boris bikes the Boris as we call yeah. them <laughs> yeah I mean maybe we should rename them but you have the Boris bikes you know things like lifting your shopping the grocery bags that counts as um, weight-bearing exercise um what else cycling walking running um gardening so these things are free now I think one of the things that I've heard a lot and I, I can understand why people say it is that eating healthy is expensive doctor and you know organic food is expensive and I and I understand that but I think you don't necessarily have to go organic and you don't have to buy posh interesting vegetables I think I genuinely actually find eating out really expensive in the UK mm -hmm. so I really think that if you plan your meals um, and it doesn't have to be fancy Nigella Lawson style meals basic meals plan them, scribble them, just make a rough plan, do your shopping in advance. So I think bulk cook, bulk buying and cooking can be affordable. Um, yeah. And if you've planned your meal and recipe, then you're hopefully likely to have less wastage. And then, you know, as a mum myself, and I'm trying to feed a family, I am aware of budget. So I'll try and do things like maybe buy frozen vegetables because um, there's less wastage or I'll buy tinned, canned um, fruit or vegetables because I know that it's less likely that they'll go off so those kind of clever things um, to just plan your meals I actually find is cheaper than you know like feeding my family or um, with, with children for a meal out because I find that quite expensive oh yeah so, yeah yeah so I think it's actually it's okay you know you can do free or cheap things to have a healthy lifestyle and I'll tell you something else actually so when I started becoming healthier we we made a decision as a family not to buy sweet treats so no desserts or snacks or crisps and my husband said to me our grocery bill has gone down because we're not buying unnecessary things that we were just buying to snack on in the evening so I think once you're slightly mindful and as you said kind of planning ahead and making conscious decisions you can actually really buckle down on those costs and you know, it's really hard times. I have so much empathy for people. People are struggling to feed their families or heat their homes. So I definitely don't think we should be going around saying, you know, have an organic Gwyneth Paltrow type posh diet. No, we have to have compassion and empathy and think about how can people feed themselves in the cheapest, healthiest way possible. And I do think that's through vegetables and frozen foods and bulk buying and maybe that comes down to teaching children how to cook in schools I think that is happening more and more in schools but you know so that people yeah, have I, life skills to buy food and to cook food and to store food that kind of thing totally and like you know um there's a man who's made a lot of money from doing free YouTube workouts like Joe Wicks like if you wanted to do something yeah. that was a bit more vigorous or like you say going out for a walk 
I agree. Like, you know, even as a nutritionist, um, you know, I, I recognize that that certain foods that are in the health food sector are really expensive and can be out, of, you know, really out of budget. But actually, a lot of the stuff, it really doesn't like fruits and vegetables are often the cheapest thing, actually, at the supermarket. I agree. And I tell you, the healthy food that costs the most is usually the processed stuff that is touted as healthy that actually really isn't. I and agree. you're better off not buying it. Like similarly to your husband, I've decided that I was relying too much on those foods. As a nutritionist, I'm guilty. It happens to me too, Absolutely. right? And I, and my last shop at a, a very bougie organic place that I, I, that's where I choose to, where I can luckily put my money, some of my money. I just cut out those convenience food and lo and behold, my bill actually went down. Absolutely. So, yeah it, I agree like it's yeah it can but even then you can still use little hacks like as you say shopping frozen um you know bulk buying uh all the things like you know going late later at night so you can get stuff that's reduced absolutely and um, there's all little things that you can do to try to bring that overall cost down I would I would tie one thing in as well mm. is the fact that I know for some of us and some of you out there listening, you can imagine the cooking is laborious and it's horrible and it takes forever and you don't know how to do it and maybe you're intimidated by it. There are so many free recipes out there in the universe for 10, 15 minutes or less. Absolutely. And just the fact that you can do something with your own hands from nothing, you make whole meal pasta with sauce, that will bring you joy. Absolutely. And you can't buy that. No. Yeah, it's it's like, being creative, right? It's you creating yeah. something. And, you know, you don't need a fancy recipe book. Oh. Just if you have the internet, Google BBC Foods 15-Minute Recipe or Jamie Oliver's 15-Minute Recipe or five-ingredient meal, I think keep it basic because yeah. it's intimidating. It is intimidating trying it to is. make a meal. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes I find, like, you know, like, like let's take last night as an example. I went to go and babysit my niece. and. Uh, uh and I got home late and on the way home I mean I luckily live with my parents I phoned my mum and said can you just boil me a couple of eggs and then I just made a salad when I got home and I was like I'm personally really happy with that because it was late at night yeah. it's warm outside I didn't want to have a personally a really big meal that took me 10 minutes to put together in the time that my eggs boiled I had the salad ready and it was Absolutely. job done and mm. so yeah it doesn't it doesn't have to be fussy you can still really enjoy your food you can absolutely create something. And, you know, actually going back to Nisa's point about like almost combining healthy habits so that, you know, you're, you're, when you're doing it under time pressure, perhaps you can listen to a podcast or like that's the time that you have away from your phone. If you have like, you know, the ingredients on your iPad or on your computer and, you know, you're not on WhatsApp or whatever. Like these are little like things that you can combine and make overall the, you know, the whole process of cooking that much more enjoyable. I agree. And actually, the only other thing I wanted to add is that when we think about um, healthy eating, then some of my patients ask me about sort of um, protein shakes and kind of liquid meals and, and things like that. And I, I think the issue is that they are expensive. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. because you're drinking, you're not chewing. So that helps you with that. There's an issue with satiety. So you don't feel full. So you might be drinking this really posh, expensive um, meal, liquid meal, but you won't have that same benefit of feeling full. So I would say avoid like liquid meals because they might be expensive and um, you're better off having something you can actually chew because it will make you feel fuller and, yeah. so you're, and, and, and it will be cheaper. 
Mm. definitely and I think there is an element of being mindful of it as well because as you're chewing it you will have texture you will will produce saliva and everything else if you are just downing some sort of protein shake where is the texture right (laughs) right you need texture you need to chew yeah your brain needs to understand that we're eating and messages need to go through from your gut to your brain and that might not happen with the expensive liquid meal so that's yeah. another thing. Absolutely. Yeah, completely agree. I, I, I was just nodding profusely earlier because I'm just like, no, I, 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 when I hear of this kind of, you, you know, liquid anything or <laughs> detox, I just, I just want to run in the opposite direction. Absolutely. I mean, when I say liquids, you know, like water, agua is your best friend. So have lots of mm-hmm. it. It's amazing, but you don't need a liquid diet to be, no. to be healthy. Not remotely. No, definitely not. Uh, this brings us very lovely and very nicely to to the, um, the end of this episode. And I think before we before we close, is there any word of wisdom, Nisa, that you would like to share with people at large? Anything that maybe helped you and you think might help others? Um, I think I would summarize my words of wisdom as eat, um, eat well, move more, sleep well. And I think my words of wisdom, if I sort of decipher that a little bit, um, eating well for some people, not all, means portion control. So if you think you need weight management, which sadly a lot of us in the UK, we do, if we're frank, we do. So portion sizes need to be discussed maybe with a nutritionist or GP, maybe you eat less and eat more of the better food because as Mira said, then you'll eat less of the bad stuff. So just try and have a little bit more vegetables and salads and you may find yourself having less desserts. Um, Sleep well. So think about sleep hygiene. So that means exercising in the day, winding down before bedtime, an hour before, getting your favorite book, having a shower, put the phone away, sleep well, get your lovely seven hours. And I can't remember what the last thing was. Did I say drink lots or move move a lot? So move, 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 move. 10,000 steps a day is not that hard if you go for a walk if you do 10 minutes of any type of exercise that you like um then that will massively help you in terms of you you'll feel good you'll have so much energy you may feel that you look good that might be a huge boost um spend time in nature cherish your loved ones so just whatsapping them may not be enough hug them see them the pandemic has taught that all of you know, taught us all of, taught all of us the importance of that. Um, so those are some of my words of wisdom. Um, that's all about kind of feeling good. Wear SPF. We haven't gone there, but everyone wear SPF every day. Protects your skin from things like skin cancer and premature aging. I could go on and on, but I think in summary, make that conscious effort, as Mira said, to look after yourself and small consistent changes. You, you know, you can build on these small habits make them part of your life so they don't become onerous they don't become a chore they are just kind of woven into your lifestyle and i think it might mean that you have a happier healthier life which is what i want as an nhs gp for for everyone for my loved ones and for all of my patients so those are my final words to you all they are (laughs) perfect thank you thank you so much Lisa. thank you for agreeing to thank you it was really lovely to to speak with you both today that's Thank you. our pleasure you're very our kind pleasure. and we are very glad that you've agreed to to come on and, and chat to us today 
And also uh, for all of you out there listening, just give us a follow, share our podcast with your loved ones or whomever you think uh, might enjoy it. And if you have any feedback for us or if you have any questions or anything you would like us to discuss in the next episodes, just let us know. We are here to... Um, We'll make sure we'll also include Nisa's details so you can give her a follow too. Yes, absolutely. We always do that. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Thank you. Cool. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Bye.